Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of First Chronicles. First Chronicles, page 507 in your Pew Bible. First Chronicles chapter 16. I know that's not listed in your bulletin as the text I'll be preaching on, but I'd like to start there and we'll go from there to the other texts uh, this morning. I'm going to give you a second to find your way there and then we'll open in prayer and then we'll look into the word this morning. Page 507, First Chronicles chapter 16, verses 23 to 29. Let's bow before the Lord. Lord, truly our hearts do desire and how we've been so encouraged today, Lord, as we have focused our attention on you, as we've reminded ourselves, Lord, that in you we find joy. Oh, in this world there is so much tribulation, there is so much grief, there is so much brokenness, so much sorrow that we can't even fathom it, Lord. It overwhelms us. And it makes our hearts yearn all the more for your return. Oh, how we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. How we thank you that there is a hope we have because of Jesus Christ, who has broken the back of Satan and who has brought to us who lived in darkness the hope of light and the hope of glory. We thank you that you, Lord Jesus, have come to the world not to bring condemnation, but to save the world. We pray, O Father, today that you might open our eyes, that we might see and appreciate all the more the glory of you, our God, and that we might understand that in you we have joy and peace and hope in the Holy Spirit. And so we ask for your help today as we look into the Word of God, that we might be taught by it, that we might be instructed, that we might be helped. And that you might use your word, Lord, which we know does never returns void, but Lord, we ask today that we might apply it to our hearts, wherever, wherever we are, whatever we're dealing with, that Lord, you might be our teacher and instructor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Everything that exists was made by God for his glory and for his honor. David, the king of Israel, so many years ago understood this perspective, and I want you to listen to what he said regarding the glory of God in the declaration he made in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 23 and following. He wrote, Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His, what? His glory among the nations, His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and joy are in His place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name. Now that is the theme that we've been developing for the last several Sundays, the idea of 
taking and this angelic choir that did exactly what David was wanting to be done, the choir that appeared to that group of shepherds and humble shepherds, ascribing to the Lord the glory due to his name, the night in which the eternal Son of God made his entrance into this world as God and man, and when he breathed his first lung full of air. To an audience of this humble shepherds, they heard that great theme, glory to God in the highest. Again, during the Advent season, we're trying to focus our attention onto the glory of God. And one theologian summarized the glory of God in this way. He said, quote, it is the superlative honor to be given to God by everything in the universe. And so it's this idea of superlative honor that we're trying to keep before us here during these weeks, that we need to think of God and the honor that he deserves. And as we capture a glimpse of God's glory at Jesus' birth, again, I've tried to remind us that this glimpse that we see of the Lord, the glory of the Lord being revealed in Luke 2 is a reminder that the triune God has a passion for his own glory. God the Father refuses to share his own glory with anyone else, Isaiah chapter 42. God has created his own people for his own glory. And the Apostle Paul pointed out the logical response to the redemptive plan, to the redemptive purpose and provision of God the Father is that we are to what? Because we have been bought with a price, we're to therefore glorify God in our bodies. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So Jesus Christ, we also noticed last week, is the Lord of glory. And the Lord of glory laid aside his brilliant eternal glory, and he humbly sought and devoted himself to glorify his Father in heaven by accomplishing all the work which the Father had given him to do. And how did he do that? By offering himself as an atoning sacrifice for sin. And Jesus' unjust suffering, interestingly enough, and his death on the cross was one of the greatest revelations of the glory of God in all of history. That baffles our minds, but that's true according to the scriptures. And so this morning, rather than just spending all the time reviewing, I want us to bring us to where we are today. This morning I want to focus our thoughts on the glory of the Holy Spirit. And I want us to think a little bit, just briefly, about one or a couple of, a couple of angles about his ministry And I want us to think about the fact that the Holy Spirit has a number of titles. He's called the Holy Spirit. He's also called the Spirit of Truth. He's called the Paraclete, which is the Greek word for the one called alongside. But another interesting, and for our purposes this morning, the significant title of the Holy Spirit recorded in 1 Peter 4 is that the Spirit is called the Spirit of Glory. So I want us to follow along this morning. We're going to think about different ministries of the Holy Spirit and why he deserves glory. The first reason before us why the Holy Spirit deserves glory is because of his creative ministry. His creative ministry. The Holy Spirit is deserving of glory and honor because, obviously, he is God. Now, some people wrongly assume that when you say Holy Spirit, that you're thinking of someone that is an impersonal force, a something, not a someone. And so some people inaccurately refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. Well, that's completely wrong and and erroneous and a false view of him. The Holy Spirit is worthy of glory because he is a person, person, a person of the Godhead. 
And because of what he does, he imparts life as a creator. And so we would say letter A, under your first point there, that the ministry of his creative ministry involves creation. What do we mean by that? Well, the first opening verses of Genesis 1. The first verse of your Bible, many of us knew God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the next verse reminds us that we immediately you're encountering the Spirit of God. Because we understand the Spirit of God at that point, we're told, was hovering over the waters where everything was empty, everything was sort of chaotic. And the plural pronouns in the first chapter of Genesis reveal that the Holy Spirit participated in this ministry and this effort of creation. When the Bible says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness in Genesis 1, clearly that includes the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He was involved in that process. We also read in Job chapter 33, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. In Psalm 104, the psalmist observed, You send forth your Spirit, and they are created. The Spirit of God is deserving of glory because He is the Creator, and He is the giver of life. The fact that you are here today, the fact that you exist, the fact that everything is in the world as you see it today and in the universe, is here because the Spirit of God has been a part of forming and creating everything you see, including yourself and the people around you. He is worthy of honor. He is also worthy of honor because of, I would say, letter B, the ministry of the creative ministry, is conception. Here I have in mind the fact that the Holy Spirit played a critical role in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. When Mary was questioned how in the world would it be possible for her, as a virgin, to conceive and bear a son who would be called Son of the Most High God, the angel responded in this way. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Very interesting phrases used there. Clearly, I think the Spirit of God, in, in the writing there of Gen- in Luke chapter 1, he is alluding to the wor- work of the Holy Spirit in creation, in the original creation. Here's now the new creation. It is Jesus Christ, the one who's going to recreate the world from the curse of sin, all the brokenness that we see around us. And so the Spirit of God's overshadowing and covering brought about the conception of Jesus in Mary's womb. And Jesus' conception was the full result of divine action on the part of the Spirit of God. Now, can I fully explain all that to you? No. I'm not going to try, so I'm just going to leave it right there. It's mysterious. But we understand that God the Spirit is to be glorified because His creative work resulted in the conception of no ordinary man who was born of Mary, that the baby born of Mary was not the biological offspring of Joseph. And if you further extract out the ministry of the Spirit, He not only was involved in the conception of Jesus, our Redeemer, but if you trace through the Spirit's involvement throughout the ministry of Jesus, You find the Spirit there helping Jesus when he was tested in the wilderness. You find the Spirit enabling uh, Jesus with miraculous power to perform miracles. Uh, Casting out demons, it says in Matthew 12, by the power of the Spirit. It is also the Spirit that was involved in raising Jesus from the dead. The Spirit was critically involved in the beginning and throughout the ministry of Jesus. And therefore, he is worthy of honor and glory. 
A third aspect of the creative ministry of the Holy Spirit is the conversion ministry of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is deserving of glory and honor because He imparts spiritual life to sinners like you and me. Those of us who are spiritually dead, those of us who at one time are unresponsive due to the trespasses and sins of our lives. And left to our own, none of us would ever make a break from our natural way of life. The, the way of life that we inherited as we began our existence in this world. All of us enter the world following a pattern of godlessness, following the world system that's around us that is governed by Satan himself. And one of the things we should respond to in light of reading of the horror that occurred this past week in Connecticut is that we should all be aware that there is in existence a kingdom of darkness. There is evil in this world. There is a kingdom of evil that is clearly in place. And that we as Christians need to understand there is a spiritual battle being waged. There is the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light. We, we as Christians have no problem affirming there is true evil in this world. We've seen it. This is not the only example. It was occurring in the time when Jesus was born. What was Herod doing? He was killing innocent babies two years and under. There is evil around us every day. There is a system governed by Satan. And so therefore, with the Spirit of God, He is deserving of glory. He is deserving of honor. Because He is the one who makes lifeless sinners alive. Together with Christ, he raises us up with Christ in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, you ought to reread that passage. It's the Spirit of God that imparts to you life, my friend. If you are no longer in the kingdom of darkness, you ought to be giving glory to the Holy Spirit who has brought you and made you alive in Christ. You have not done that yourself. The glorious Holy Spirit is the author of the new birth. The new birth that Jesus declared is so critically necessary to be into the kingdom. Jesus said in John chapter 3, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of this flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is indeed Spirit. My friend, the whole point of this first point I'm trying to make here, the, the emphasis I'm trying to, to encourage us to, to respond is to realize we ought to be worshiping the Holy Spirit. We ought to be rever showing reverence toward Him and His work among us. It so saddens and grieves me that so many people misuse the Holy Spirit, mis uh, they align the Holy Spirit, they, they speak ill of the Holy Spirit and inaccurately of Him because He is God, He is fully God. And yet the way in which he's talked about, he's not to be manipulated. We're not to insult the Holy Spirit. We're not to grieve the Holy Spirit or quench him. We're not to ascribe to the Holy Spirit all sorts of visions and revelations that people claim they have from the Holy Spirit. All kinds of false prophecies, false miracles that people claim. All sorts of crazy behavior, people falling backwards. You ever seen that? Somebody touches them on the head, they fall backwards. They're slain in the Spirit. Show me that in Scripture, anywhere, that attributes that kind of behavior to the Holy Spirit. It's offensive to the Holy Spirit to claim that somehow that's what the Spirit does to people. The Spirit of God brings people to life. 
That's his role. That's his ministry. It is so grieves my heart as I've been thinking and praying about how the Holy Spirit is so robbed of his glory because so many people are going around talking about the Holy Spirit, doing this, doing that. It has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit most of the time. So they always attribute various strange phenomena to the Holy Spirit when there's no mention of that at all in Scripture. What is, it? What is the point here? The Spirit of God empowers people to holy living. When you see people respond with joy in the midst of uh, difficult circumstances, much suffering, many reasons to complain, that, my friend, is the evidence of the Holy Spirit. When you see people who are thankful when there are many things going on in their life that are very difficult to see and you understand that their life is broken on many levels, you say to yourself, that's the evidence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit provides, my friends, assurance for those who truly are the children, children of God that they are indeed adopted and loved by God. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He has imparted life and now he gives that sense of security in knowing that you are now one who belongs to God. So the Lord, the Lord's Spirit, He is the one who's deserving of glory. Why? Because of His creative ministry. He's made all things. He brought life to Jesus Christ in the womb. He also is one who imparts life to you and to me. I want to move on now to another ministry of the Holy Spirit, as to why He deserves glory, and that has to do with His, what I call the floodlight ministry. Floodlight ministry. Some of you are scratching your head thinking, what in the world is He talking about? Well, turn in your Bible to John 16, if you would. John 16, page 1285 in your pew Bible. You see, the more we attempt to plumb the depth of mystery and majesty within the Godhead, the more we discover immeasurable depths of perfect beauty, perfect love, perfect peace, perfect unity, perfect oneness that exists among the members of the Godhead. As we read the Gospels, Jesus on numerous occasions mentioned that the members of the Godhead, they would defer to each other as they sought the glory of the other. When you see people that can't relate to each other, you see total conflict, and you see people whose relationships are broken, they can't seem to get along, it ought to make you long for what? For what you see within God, that God has established His relational people, they always desire the glory of each other in a beautiful, harmonious way. And here in this passage, John 16, another amazing insight Jesus provides to His disciples. He's speaking to them, at knowing that He's about to die, and knowing that His ministry on earth is really at its conclusion. And so He's preparing them for His departure, which is imminent. Look at verses 13 and 14 of John 16. He indicates he's not just going to leave them there to fend for themselves. We read this. When the truth, spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he speaks, sorry, whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. Now watch this. He, that is the spirit, shall glorify me. Who's the me? Jesus. For he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. Now let me just say here as a parenthesis, we know technically speaking he's talking to his immediate disciples there, the twelve who are gathered. But we know by inference and by, by reference to the benefit of what they were able to gather from that, we too can be somehow included in the benefits 
that they derive from this promise. But what I want us to notice in this passage is notice the focal point, at least one significant focal point of the Spirit of God's ministry is to be a highlighting ministry. He highlights Jesus Christ. It is the the magnifying of Jesus Christ. That's what one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is. And so therefore, the Spirit's role right now is to make much of Jesus and fulfill what J.I. Packer, in his book, Keep in Step of the Spirit, he calls the floodlight ministry of Jesus. Now let me just take a moment and just uh, ask you to think for a second. How many of you have ever been to Washington, D.C. and seen Washington, D.C. at night? How many have been there at nighttime, Washington, D.C.? Many of you. Okay. How many have ever seen the Washington Monument at night? Okay, great. Many of you have. If you haven't, it's worth seeing. It's a very beautiful city. That's one of the things to see. Uh, One bit of uh, family lore and uh, interesting trivia about uh, the family that uh, I'm a part of, now that I'm part of my wife's family as well, is that her dad, years ago, worked for the General Services Agency, and part of his assignment in, in the work he was assigned to do was to design the lighting for the Washington Monument. Now, you didn't know that, but that's a big deal in our family. Uh, most people don't know that. Of course, now I know this has been many years ago. I'm sure the lighting since then has been upgraded. I'm sure it's been changed and modified. But in our family, every time we think of the Washington Monument and we see it ever in pictures or we ever go there, uh, and we've seen it uh, illuminated at night, we always think about Joyce's dad and, and the role that he played years ago in his contribution to that particular uh, site. Now, most people, when you go somewhere, they don't notice floodlights in general. And you specifically would never notice or think much about floodlights at the Washington Monument. But our family, hey, we celebrate the contribution of one of our clan. I mean, here's a significant contribution to one of the uh, landmarks in Washington, D.C. But let's be honest. When you see a building or a monument or anything at night that has been highlighted and illuminated by floodlights, is the first question you say is, wow, what fantastic floodlights those are. Nobody says that. Of course not. When floodlights are working effectively, our attention is not drawn to the floodlights. It's drawn toward that on which the floodlights are trained. It's what's being illuminated. And the Holy Spirit, though deserving of much glory and though deserving of much honor, and he is deserving of that and he should be worshipped, but we also know that he has chosen not to be in the spotlight as much as he wants to what? He wants us to sort of have, remain in a position behind us, as it were. He's throwing this light over our shoulders, and he's projecting a brilliant floodlight upon Jesus Christ, who, as it were, stands in front of us. The Holy Spirit never says, look at me and make much of me. The Spirit is saying, rather, look at Jesus. Look at his glory. Look at And look at his life. Listen to him. Listen and hear his word. Get to know him. Get to have life in him. Taste the gift of joy and peace as you take up your cross and follow him. That's what the Spirit is saying. And if we have been quickened by God's Spirit, we're made alive and we now sense this work of the Spirit of God with our hearts and we have a love for Christ and we've we've repented and we've trusted in Christ, we're we're uh, desiring to serve Him and know Him and love Him, and we're keeping in step with the Spirit, then we will glorify God 
by making Jesus the focus of our hope, the focus of our joy, the focus of our service, the focus of our our pursuits and our life. It's all going to be directed toward Jesus. And the floodlight ministry of the Spirit of God is intended to remind us that we are not meant to live in the spotlight ourselves, which is what our world keeps telling us. You should be in the spotlight. It's all about you. You should have people notice you and make much of you and highlight everything about you. But the focal point of the Christian life is not on ourselves. It's on Jesus Christ. It's on His life that He lived in doing good and keeping the law. It's on His selfless death on the cross. It's on His resurrection and victory over the grave and over hell and over sin and over the evil itself found in the person of Satan. It is on the fact that He is ascension to heaven and the fact that He is interceding at the throne even now in great glory and highest position of honor. Had Jesus not come as a babe in Bethlehem, we would still be in darkness and we would still be awaiting our just damnation. But as the Apostle Paul noted in 1 Corinthians 1, in the Gospel, Jesus Christ has become to us Wisdom from God. Righteousness from God. He has become to us sanctification from God. He has become to us redemption. He is our everything. And so the Spirit is throwing this floodlight on Christ. Let me ask you, is Christ the one that fills you with joy? Is Christ the one that motivates you in what you do? Is Christ the one that you go back to again and again to find hope and peace and joy? Jesus was made like us so that he could be our mediator, so he could be our representative, so he could be our high priest. And the Spirit of God, I'm convinced, was involved in the process of superintending, and that's what he was telling the immediate disciples was. He's going to help you remember all the things you need to know so that you can write them in Scripture as the apostles wrote the New Testament Scripture, including the Apostle Paul, and that those Scriptures were what? Were focused on Jesus Christ, primarily. We have four Gospels. What are they focused on? the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So that in Christ, as even Jesus says, go back and read the Hebrew Scriptures. They're talking about me. So the more we get into the Scriptures, the more we're finding that the Holy Spirit helps us to have our eyes to see the glories of Christ, to see what Christ has accomplished for us, so that we might know who we are in Christ and therefore enjoy the benefits that come with adoption as children of God. Is the floodlight on Christ from your perspective? Do you see Christ? Then pray the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to see more and more, to know Jesus Christ, to know the joy of making Him the center of all of your affections and love and service as you again acknowledge to give glory to the Holy Spirit for His role in pointing us to Christ, who is King and Lord over all. Let me encourage you to one other reason why the Holy Spirit is worthy of glory. And that has to do with his ministry that's recorded there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me encourage you to turn there in your Bible, 2 Corinthians 3. This is my last point. Find joy and hope in that, right? 2 Corinthians 3, page 1375. I couldn't leave this off in terms of why we should give glory to the Holy Spirit and honor him. Is because he's involved in this very significant ministry, what I call the ministry of transformation. Follow along the reading now of the last verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 
But we all, as in contrast to what he's written previous, he's now using the word but, so he says, instead of all that Moses was involved in with the old covenant ministry that faded and didn't last and all these things, he says, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. You say, wow, that's pretty hard to understand. It's saying a lot of interesting things here. Well, let me just try to summarize here. Again, Paul contrasted the blessings of the new covenant now against the experiences of Moses and the generation of the old covenant. And he says, when we embrace the gospel, we're blessed to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Once the Spirit of God opens our eyes to see and treasure Jesus' moral excellence, and as we treasure and enter into the joy of adoption and justification, then God's Spirit begins an ongoing process of transformation. We're not saved to forever remain the same. I'm going to say that again. We're not saved to forever remain the same. We are saved to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. And the more we gaze into the glories of Christ in the gospel and we marvel at the wonders of what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ in the gospel of of his death, burial, and resurrection, the more the Spirit of God works in us what I would call and what's commonly known as progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. The Christian life is not arriving at some plateau where all of a sudden you're like, Okay, I become a Christian. I'm upon this high plateau. And I just live up here in this high level of experience of of, of supernatural joy and amazing behavior in my life that's radically different from everything I was just only 24 hours ago. That's an inaccurate understanding of how the Spirit of God works in us. Now, it's true that our identity changes when we become a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, when we are converted and we regenerated. But what we're talking about here in this verse in 2 Corinthians 3.18 is we'll notice that the Christian life is not this boom, up on this high level of experience, and then you just sort of live up there. But notice that the text describes a progressive process of change. It works in our character, works in our heart by the Lord the Spirit, and we move from one level of glory to another level of glory, to another level of glory, to another level of glory, over a period of time as we continue our Christian walk. Now, let me see if I can illustrate this. Suppose we have a very fancy car that has been very carefully made and is exquisite. Years ago, we had a guy in a Bible study. uh, I was trying to remember his name. I can't remember his name. But he used to work on Rolls Royces right here in town, uh, over in Smithtown somewhere. I don't know. And uh, I used to quiz him about that. I said, what's it like working on Rolls Royce? Well... Uh, we have a lot of uh, particular owners who just want things just right, you know, so he's like talking about how difficult it was. But anyway, he, he, Rolls-Royce, you know, is one of these fancy cars, only it's a custom-made, all these parts are exquisite, very, very expensive, the best of everything in the car. And imagine if you had a, this nicely designed car like that, and it's designed for the service to make the most luxury, the most comfortable ride you can imagine, and that car is stolen. And the person who stil- stole it they drive it recklessly at high speed. It's involved in a head-on crash so that the, 
this beautiful, beautiful craftsmanship in this car has now been bent and twisted and distorted and broken. All these parts of it are now just trashed. And along with that, worse than that, is that now you've, it, there's been a small fire that started, and now the, now the thing is caught on fire. So you're looking at something that was once this exquisite is now ruined. And as Ron Plasinski would say, you need to tow it out of here. He's the adjuster. We're going to replace this thing. That's gone. That's trash. And we're done with that. But imagine if someone were to say, no, a skilled craftsman says, I'm going to buy that thing. I'm going to take that piece, even though it's all crumpled up, it's ruined, it's no good. I'm going to take it apart piece by piece. I'm going to replace the, it cannot work anymore. I'm going to clean what can be clean. I will take the other things apart. And I'm going to rebuild this particular car. And though he straighten out the things that have been twisted, he replaces what's been ruined, he refurbishes what's been seared by the fire, restores the car to pristine splendor. You know, there are people that do that, you know. They take this old thing that looks like junk and they create a treasure out of it. Now that's, in some ways, what you could summarize is the work of sanctification. If you think of it not as an inanimate object, but think of it as our own lives is that the process of, of the mechanic working on changing what has been ruined and then replacing it with things that need to be replaced and making it back to what it needs to be, that's, all, that's really what sanctification is. So if we think of the idea of removing certain parts of the car that, have, that, that are no longer useful and those things that have been damaged, those things that have intruded into the mechanism, that's what we call mortification. So that we put off areas of our lives that, that are not helpful, that, uh, things that should be removed from our experience and from our regular way of coping and living and responding. And so some of us think of us all the negative part of Christianity. They think of, that's awful. But if you think about what the goal is to restore, is it really bad to take like a seat of a car that was one time leather, it's been burned, it's been melted, it's no good, take that out of there, it's smelly, and put a new, nice new one back in place? That's a good thing. So if you think of the bad things being removed, that's part of the process called mortification, the idea of putting off what's no longer honoring to God and no longer appropriate in light of who we are. But then there's the positive aspect of putting those things back in that need to be there, and we develop within ourselves the new, a new way of responding uh, to growing and to learning to, to now add to our life the things that God wants us to be doing. So we put on the new self, as it were. We're being renewed in knowledge, Colossians 3.10 says. Renewed in knowledge in the image of our Creator. So there's this whole process of being changed over time that happens in our Christian life. Now I came across an interesting article about sanctification by Roger Nicole, and he says this. Think about the life of the Apostle Paul and how God worked in him the process of sanctification as he gradually grew in his walk with more Christ as God remade him and made him more like Christ over a period of time. He said this, when we think of the process of growth, we think of sometimes there's some painful discoveries that come along the way that God keeps bringing to our attention. You know, you're, you're far more corrupt than you realize. There's far more things wrong with you you ever had imagined at certain times in your life. And so these painful discoveries come. For example, Apostle Paul, early in his ministry, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's the least of the apostles. He realized that what? He had been involved in destroying the church at one time. So he says, I don't really deserve to be an apostle, so that's the way I view myself. But as time went on, the apostle Paul then realized the more he's thought about the grace of God and the more he's thought about his own 
uh, person. A few years later, he wrote the Ephesians in chapter 3. He said, I am less than the least of all God's people. Now, that's not a man growing in pride. That's a man realizing what? I am realizing there are a lot of things in my life that I realize I'm no better than anybody else. I look at myself now as I need all the more grace for God to work in my heart and life. I'm the least of all believers, not worthy of the grace of God. Well, clearly we all know that, but he sensed it even greater the longer he lived the Christian life. And then we find him at the end of his life, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the close of his career, one of the greatest missionaries ever lived. What does he say? Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Do you find that in your life, these painful discoveries come when you realize that your selfish heart operates more often than you ever realized it did? That you're more quick to become frustrated with people around you because things don't work the way you wish they would or you they're not saying what you want them to hear or whatever you've got your own agenda you want to see things done your way you realize i am so selfish i'm so impatient i'm a person who gets really grumpy about these things and you find yourself saying i'm becoming more aware of how i need to be more like jesus that's the work of the spirit the spirit is drawing us what from one level of glory to another level of glory to another level of glory so that you're not up here you don't live up here as your Christian life, that's where you're hoping the Lord's going to bring you someday. But we find ourselves making small progress over a long period of time as He continues to work in us, as we continue to what? Stay in the Word, continue to pray and ask Him to help us, confessing our sins, acknowledging our faults, and realizing how much we need the Spirit to help us. The Spirit becomes more of like Jesus Christ helping us in our motives, our thoughts, our actions. And I tell you, the more I realize it, the more I read the Word, the more I realize, Lord, I have a long way to go. long way to go. Lord, I'm not there yet. I'm having a hard time forgiving this person over here. I just want to be angry at them right now. I'm so fed up with them. They hurt me. They said this. Whatever. And then there's another person part of me that says, I don't want to do this. I'm too afraid of that. I don't want to move forward. I don't want to trust you in this. I don't want to surrender that, Lord. And you find the Lord bringing these issues to your awareness. Why? Because he's in the process as the master craftsman of remaking you into the image of Christ. That, my friend, is all the reason to give glory to the Holy Spirit who the work he's begun in you, he's going to complete. He's not going to give up. And that, my friend, is the wonderful work of transformation that only can be done through the Spirit of God as he works in us day by day. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the amazing, powerful work that you do, not only in creation and making all things, imparting to us life, taking us from our condition of dead, being dead in sin, being making us alive in Christ. Lord, I pray today that there's there's someone here today who has never had this change of heart, who's never surrendered to christ who's never seen this this uh, change in our attitude of of becoming aware of how much they've offended you how much they need a savior and their their sin is weighing heavily upon them lord i pray even today would you by your spirit draw them to christ draw them into a, a vital and living relationship with jesus christ through the power of the holy spirit may you impart the life 
of God within them, I pray. And Lord, I pray also for those of us who oftentimes have been duped into thinking erroneous things about the Spirit and what He's involved in doing in this world. Lord, I pray that You would forgive us for ways in which we have maligned You as the Spirit, ways in which we have thought wrongly about Your ministry, that we have been oftentimes attributing the wrong things to what the Spirit of God is doing. Lord, forgive us and help us to see that we need to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. That's what the Spirit wants us to be doing. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to get our eyes off of other people and off ourselves and more that we would be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And I pray, Lord, too, that today you would help us remember for those of us who are discouraged in our spiritual walk and many of us, Lord, who who have become stuck and we find ourselves in the same behavior patterns, the same thought patterns, the same struggles that don't seem to ever go away. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you would impart to us greater insight, Lord, from your word in Ephesians 4 and other passages where we would put off the old things, put off the old self, and put on the new things, Lord. And that we might see the Holy Spirit transforming us from one step of glory to another step of glory. That we might reflect more of who Jesus Christ is in our character, in our heart, in our motives, in our way of thinking. Lord, we can't do these things. We are so weak and so incapable but we thank you lord that you holy spirit you're the one who can do those we pray that you might have a powerful work within our hearts lord would you convict us and would you empower us and would you fill us that we might be the people of god and we might be quickened and brought to life in christ and we can all say we give you glory holy spirit we pray in your name amen